Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, after the Marshall Fire, many homeowners who lost everything are now facing the challenge of finding a place to live in an already strapped housing market. So I think this whole situation, our life is pretty much upside down. We'll hear from some fire survivors about that and explore where communities are in the rebuilding process. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Since the Marshall Fire destroyed more than 1,000 properties at the end of December, homeowners continue to search for a new place to live. But many are being confronted with a perfect storm of high prices and low inventory as they try to piece their lives back together. As KUNC's Lee Patterson reports, families are struggling with a challenging housing market and a strong desire to stay put. As we drive through her neighborhood, Eva Redpath describes what it once was. We could walk this path to the rec center, and the lake is another block from us. She points out her dentist's house, her son's friend's house. That code is we always do block parties. Um, Families always have barbecues and invite the whole neighborhood. It's just a really great neighborhood. On December 30th, the Marshall Fire transformed this place. All around, homes are burnt down to their innards. Pipes, foundations, air conditioners. We will return is scrawled across a piece of plywood and orange spray paint. You were here earlier today? Yeah. I came in with my son for almost like a couple times a week just to get that grief out. When we sit down to talk outside a coffee shop downtown, Redpath weeps when describing the full impact of the fire on her family. Her husband and eight-year-old son evacuated in their truck, wind and ash whipping around them while Redpath picked up her daughter in town. Her kids often talk about what they lost that day. Toys, favorite books. Her son recently drew a bird with tears streaming down its face. Yeah, so I think this whole situation, our life is pretty much upside down. Redpath craves the stability her family had here. That's why she's set on returning to Louisville. But she, like so many others, is running up against high prices and few options. Redpath says her insurance company offered a couple of apartments, but they were all too expensive, too far away, or too short term. Her calls to landlords... They either get back to you with a really high price or there's five people ahead of you. In January, the state's attorney general warned of price gouging, sending a letter to major rental companies like Airbnb and Zillow, asking them to prevent it. The less impact to our regular lifestyle is, is the best, but looking for that home in a reasonable price is almost impossible right now. Getting rehoused is a multi-step process. Those who want to rebuild need to first find a long-term rental, Those who want to buy a new home need to find a house for sale. But the real estate market in Boulder County is tight. In January, the average sales price for a home was over a million dollars. 
only 156 new homes came on the market. There was already a, a major shortage of homes. Shannon Schleip is a local real estate agent who started a Facebook page to help fire-impacted people find housing. She points out this problem predates the fire. You know, you have thousands of people who just became displaced needing replacement homes, and we just don't have the vacancies. Boulder County is offering some financial assistance, as is the federal government. A few websites aggregate available units, but part of the problem is that most of the destroyed properties were single-family homes. Few of the available rental units are big enough. We've had a lot of people that have offered basements and bedrooms and shared spaces and things like that, which just isn't ideal for people with families and dogs and cats, you know, people really need their own space while they're recovering. Less than half of the 350 rental properties listed online by the Boulder Area Rental Housing Association, or BARHA, are homes with two or more bedrooms. But Todd Ulrich, BARHA's board president, says the rental market has been improving from almost no inventory in the days after the fire to people with second homes in the area offering them up, for example. Some of them were even just letting people use it without having to pay rent. They were just wanting to help. Out of the 2,800 survivors who have applied for assistance since the fire, more than half reported to the federal government that they were in short-term housing, staying with friends at a hotel or in a temporary rental. A small number were homeless, and about 1,000 said they were rehoused, back in their homes or in a long-term rental. Ulrich is optimistic that things will improve soon for two reasons. First, some people whose homes were damaged in the fire will start to be able to move back in, freeing up wherever they'd been staying. And... Our market is so heavily influenced by the school year, so as we approach summer, there will be quite a bit more available because leases will be ending and people have secured what's next and they'll be moving out. Eva Redpath continues to search for a place to live long term. Is this your lot right here? This is my lot right here. We have this beautiful tree, this pink in the swing. The tree is now completely blackened. The basement is exposed and filled with debris. Redpath did find a collection of photographs her husband took decades ago, charred but maybe salvageable. Do you think about rebuilding? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to, you know, come back into a strong community with friends around it. There's no set time frame for rebuilding yet. The debris removal process is just getting underway. That's why finding the right long-term housing is so important. This might take longer than five years even at this point, in my opinion, because it's such a huge area. I don't think it's ever going to be the same. I hope it's going to be the same, but I don't know. Redpath and her family have just moved into a basement-level two-bedroom rental in Louisville. It's temporary, but her daughter can walk to school. We like it here, Redpath says. Things are going well. Lee Patterson, KUNC. For more now on the issue of rebuilding after the Marshall Fire, KUNC's Lee Patterson is here to talk us through where communities are in that process. Hi, Lee. Hey, Erin. From your interview with Eva Redpath, the homeowner who we just heard from in your story, she sounded conflicted about rebuilding, in part because it might take so long. From all of your reporting on this topic, is this a common feeling among survivors? Yes, absolutely. The sense I've gotten is that 
people want to rebuild because they love their neighbors and their neighborhoods so much, but that it seems really like a totally overwhelming thing right now that might take a really, really long time. You know, of course, the fire was a traumatizing event. People have lost everything. Many don't even have a place to live in the long term, and they're still working on replacing basic stuff, you know, clothes, um, kitchen stuff. So I think the thought of rebuilding a home from the rubble that is there right now is just a lot to consider. Plus, the process is going to vary depending on where you live, unincorporated Boulder County, Superior, Louisville. So that's some of what I've been hearing. Right. Well, the city of Louisville recently surveyed homeowners about their rebuilding plans. What do the results tell us about what homeowners are up against? So out of the 500 or so responses that came in, most homeowners said they were underinsured. 60% said that they were so underinsured that it might actually affect their ability to rebuild at all. So what that means is that a homeowner's insurance policy covers only a fraction of the total cost to rebuild, in part because As we all know, costs have increased so much recently due to labor and supply shortages, but um, some of that could ease, of course, as time goes on. Now, another important issue is how to rebuild. The Louisville survey showed that people have pretty mixed opinions on this. Uh, Options on the table range from individual homeowners hiring their own architects and contractors in a suburban area with hundreds of homes needing to rebuild. You can just imagine how quickly that could become complicated. There's also been talk about working with one or a few contractors, so people would essentially be rebuilding like along with their neighbors. At this point, there's very little central coordination. Lots of groups are meeting with many different goals. A Louisville official during a meeting recently called the situation, quote, very disorganized. And, you know, the last thing is that rebuilding, of course, can't start until the actual debris removal process is finished. And right now it's on hold because of a lawsuit against the county alleging problems with the way it selected the contractor to do that work. That's a lot to just have that one thing, one more thing piled on here. Hopefully that's something that gets resolved very quickly. Lee, I want to talk about the issue of green building codes. Yeah, that's been a really, really big issue since the fire. The new green building codes that were adopted by the city of Louisville this past fall required all sorts of things. You know, the homeowners use solar energy, install EV charging stations, upgrade their windows, install energy efficient heating and cooling, et cetera, et cetera. And these were some of the most ambitious standards in the state. Then the Marshall Fire happened and people who lost their homes were all of a sudden faced with having to rebuild with these expensive upgrades. An outside engineering firm estimated it would have added at least $19,000 to construction costs. But earlier this week, after a protest outside of City Hall and lots of emotional public comment, Louisville City Council actually did decide to allow fire survivors to opt out of these new codes. In Superior, it's a similar situation. Earlier this week, town trustees also passed greener, more efficient building standards similar to the ones in Louisville, but included an exception for fire victims. Leah, it almost sounds like some underlying tension here in that green building codes, which are meant to slow climate change and prevent extreme weather events like wildfires, were also going to increase costs for fire victims. Right, exactly. Some residents I talked with absolutely supported these updates, some voted for them, but many also just wanted a break from all the things that are starting to add up to um, very high rebuilding costs. 
Lee, we talked about some of what's going on in Louisville and Superior. The Marshall Fire also destroyed homes in unincorporated Boulder County. What is the rebuilding situation there? So the county's in the process of working on something called Article 19. Article 19 is part of its land use code, and it um, spells out how to rebuild after a disaster. So the county's been holding meetings to go over these plans and gather feedback from the public with the overall goal of simplifying the rebuilding process. One uh, particular example is getting rid of something called a site plan review. It's something that the county does to make sure your project won't have any major impacts, any negative impacts on the surrounding land or environment. With Article 19, homeowners wouldn't need to do a site plan review if the home is pretty similar to the home that had burned down. So that's one example. Article 19 also defines what a cleaned up property means. Uh, A lot of this debris contains hazardous material, so that's pretty important. It also addresses, to come full circle, temporary housing during the rebuilding process with the possibility of people living on their properties during that time in an RV, for example. Um, That is a little bit of what has been under discussion so far on Article 19. Okay, so that's a possibility for fire survivors who are having trouble finding housing. Yeah, it's a possibility for people from unincorporated Boulder County under these regulations. Uh, A draft of the regulations will be available for public review next week. And then in the next couple of weeks, they'll be considered by the county's planning commission and then the board of county commissioners. All right. Well, thank you so much for your reporting on this, Lee. You're welcome. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The first broadcast of NPR's All Things Considered went out over the airwaves on May 3, 1971. And over the five decades since, public media has played a leading role in helping to open the field of broadcast journalism to more women. During Women's History Month, we wanted to take some time to remember and celebrate the contributions of four women who were there in those early formational years of NPR, the so-named Founding Mothers. They opened doors and charted new paths for the next generations of women in journalism. Lisa Napoli is a journalist and the author of Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. I spoke with her about their enduring contributions to the field of broadcast journalism when her book first came out last May. You almost don't have to say their last names, but I will. Susan Stamberg, Linda Wertheimer, Nina Totenberg, Koki Roberts. Why are they referred to as the Founding Mothers? Well, Susan Stamberg really is the founding mother because she was the first female co-host of All Things Considered about a year or so after it started in 1972 is when she went on the air. But she generously extended it to the other women whose names you just mentioned, because all four of them really were pioneers in the 1970s as NPR was coming up. And they really helped define the sound as NPR was taking hold across the nation. Of course, there were many people behind the scenes, but those women defined the sound. So Susan just sort of cheekily started calling them that. The story of their careers really begins in the early 60s and then, of course, continues through the 70s um, with NPR. What was the landscape of broadcast media like? It was incredibly hard for women to get jobs at any level in the media, uh, particularly if they wanted their own byline 
or to do what you do, have your voice on the radio. It just wasn't allowed. Most of media at that point, and by media, we mean at that point, television news and some limited radio news was controlled and fronted by men, usually white men. Uh, It was really difficult for women generally. It wasn't just in broadcasting. I mean, this was a time when ads were just beginning to not be segregated, black, white, men, women. If, if a woman got married, it was very difficult for her to factor her income into a mortgage application, say, or to get her name on a bank account if she wasn't married, because it was seen that women were always going to go get pregnant and, and leave their jobs or be told to leave their jobs. So the world was just completely different. And that was reflected in the media that we consumed. And then along came National Public Radio, which set out to do things a little differently. It was kind of chartered with this mission to serve people whose needs were woefully underrepresented by commercial broadcasting, as you write. That principle extended to who they hired to work there. Was that an intentional part of their thinking to hire women? Yes. And and when we say they, we have to say that it was a man named Bill Seemering, who was an incredibly progressive person. All of public radio was nothing like we know of it today. It was very small. Most stations had tiny budgets. Most of the people who worked there were volunteers. So NPR, the creation of it in 1970 and the launch of it in 1971, created a whole new ecosystem. And this fellow, Bill Seemering, basically didn't want people from fancy corners of the universe, nor did he want people who were the same sorts of people you'd hear everywhere else. He decidedly wanted to create something that was different. So one great story of that is Linda Wertheimer walked in the door and she'd gone to Wellesley. And when he saw that, he was very concerned. He didn't want to hire somebody who'd gone to this rarefied East Coast school. But when she explained that she was in fact on scholarship at Wellesley and that her parents were grocers back in Carlsbad, New Mexico, go. He was on board. I have to ask, when the voices of these women first hit the airwaves, how were they received? Well, it was very unusual to hear a woman on the radio who was doing something other than talking about women's news, society, gossip, weddings and gowns and lunches and stuff like that. So to hear a woman, especially in a smaller, more remote part of the country, who had a New York accent, as Susan Stamberg did, and who laughed with abandon. That wasn't what broadcasters did. Broadcasters sounded like this. All of a sudden, you had people who sounded like us having a conversation, and that was a marvel. And some people, to your point, were not so thrilled about that. That was not what they were used to. Oh, my God, women are talking. Oh, and they're talking about important stuff. Oh, that's terrible. But of course, these women, uh, Susan the chief among them were the people who got people used to the idea that women could have intelligent conversations on the radio about important subjects. You write about Cokie Roberts, who became just an indispensable figure in politics, both on radio and TV and books, kind of normalized just women talking about politics. People would come up to her on the street and say, I've never heard women talk about these subjects before. And of course, for Koki, it was baked into her. Both her mother and her father were were lawmakers in Congress. And so it wasn't alien for her. It was just perfectly natural. But when people would come up to her on the street, men and women, and say, I've never heard women speak like this, it's really hard for us to imagine that that was true not very long ago, but it was. There were some women, and I write about them in the book, who did come before 
Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, they were there, but they were few and far between. So in our lifetime, the idea that Koki was given a seat at the table, both on radio and on television with the Brinkley show was spectacular. It was groundbreaking. What was it like for these four women to to start coming up together and rising in this traditionally male-dominated field? It was such a startup mentality. It was such a scrappy place, NPR, at that time. And there were so few people that nobody had the time to discriminate. Once you walked in the door, and and Susan and and Linda both walked in the door before it went on the air, not in on-air jobs, but what they saw was, whoa, we only have five reporters. We better contribute. And they wanted to contribute. So in their spare time, they picked up the microphone and did stories and got on the air that way. So, you know, it was underfunded, but it was a wonderful startup where anybody who's worked in one knows it's both really, really hard, but also really gratifying because it's got that let's put on a show mentality. We're all in it together and we'll all do whatever we need to do to get the program out there every day. Linda made herself the consumer correspondent because that was a big push in the 70s. And then from there, She started studying up on Congress uh, and learned so much about it that she was able to go into Congress and and report. And the men at first, you know, they might call her little lady uh, and she would say, hey, big senator. And she'd playfully push back at them. And, uh, you know, she showed she knew her stuff. And that's really, in the end, what mattered and what got them the acceptance. I love what you wrote of of the story of how Susan Stamberg found herself at American University's newly launched educational station, which, of course, is still around WAMU. They were seeking a producer for a public affairs show, and uh, she had to ask her friend, what does a producer do? Can can you just kind of talk about her answer and and what it took for her, you know, to, to get in there and the other founding mothers? Susan had gone to an excellent college on scholarship, Barnard, and, uh, you know, elevated out of her family's orbit, which hadn't been an educated family. Uh, Her parents hadn't been. And then she went and married a man who was at Harvard Law School, who when he got a job in Washington, you know, Susan naturally went with him and she could only get a job as a typist. And she had a great brain and wanted to use it. And this woman who got her connected to WAMU, which was just starting out, Susan said, well, I, a producer doesn't take no for an answer. That's me. I'm not going to take no for an answer. So I'm going to be the producer. And she was, and she worked her way into an on-air slot there. And of course, as she says herself, you know, the stakes were low. There were, the money was terrible. If she hadn't been married, she couldn't have afforded to do it. But what she got was this education in radio that people now go to the best journalism schools in the country to get. I want to talk about Nina Totenberg, too, just briefly, because she famously covers the Supreme Court. How did she change Supreme Court coverage and our understanding of what goes on? Well, she invented a broadcast style of covering something which, as she says, some people think is really boring. Um, And anybody who listens and enjoys her reports and learns from her reports knows it's certainly not boring. She has created this whole tone of broadcasting that is going to be someday irreplaceable. Uh, She's going to keep working until she can anymore. But but what's so interesting about her, Erin, is that she dropped out of college 
to become a newspaper reporter. She had a hard time finding a job. It wasn't that she didn't have a college degree. It was that she was a woman. And she made her way through a series of connections and, and breaks to NPR in 1974-75 is when she actually got put on staff. And it wasn't so much that somebody said, hey, you go reinvent the coverage of the Supreme Court. It was, hey, you, you're hardworking. You have to cover this and that and this and that. And over time, it became her domain. And she fell in love with this judicial process and, you know, arguably knows more about it than almost anybody else alive. And she doesn't have a law degree. She just studied like Linda did with Congress. She studied it and has learned it. And now she's got the institutional knowledge that money couldn't buy. I think it's important to note that all of the founding mothers are white women. In a way, it sort of plays into the NPR stereotype that the audience is built of white, wine-drinking, tote-bag-using liberals. Um, why were none of the founding mothers women of color, and has NPR done things since then to try to diversify? To the latter question, yes. I'm not affiliated with NPR, so I can only say that as an observer, I notice that there is a push. However, as far as the first four women, I can say that what happened is that the very beginning, that founding father, Bill Seamering really dearly wanted to make sure he didn't have a homogenous staff who walked in the door were people who were sadly mostly white because that's how media worked back then. There wasn't a recruitment effort. It wasn't an HR effort. It was just who knew who, who came in and who got the job. And Bill did try to hire as a co-anchor, a black man, but that man didn't want to give up his job at ABC, which was a really good job, to come work for this untested place. So I always think in that in the face of the question you just asked me, if that hadn't been the case, how different the scene would have been set. But it really is, it's not a failing of NPR as much as it is a failing of our society and a gradual change in our society, both with women and with race. Lisa Napoli is the author of Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for all your thoughtful questions. That's our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.